There, oops. Okay, there we go. Okay. We're are, good to go. Are now. you saying only Seventh-day Adventists will go to heaven? Well, that's a good question because uh, Wednesday night we had the discussion about the remnant, mm-hmm. and we found out that God has always had a remnant, and there's some really important qualities about the remnant. They follow God in obedience, and they almost always have always that I can find in the Bible, they have some kind of a purpose, a mission. So, for instance, you had Noah. He is a remnant, and it's not because he's like somebody special, except that when God looked throughout the earth, Noah is following God. And so, Noah was given a mission, build an ark, make a space for people so that when the judgment comes, they can be delivered. And of course, the judgment came. He preached about the judgment for 120 years, and, and, uh, and only a few took him up on the offer. Um, and so, he's a remnant. Nothing special about him except that he followed God, and he had a mission that God had given him. And you can find that for Abraham. He followed God, and, and God had a mission. And as a result of Abraham, his, there's a, the Israelites were born, and they follow God, well, sometimes, but they follow God, and they've got a mission to take the gospel to the world. And then Jesus comes, and uh, think about Jesus' time. Jesus has a, a, um, a nation of Israelites, and Israelites are supposed to be following God, right? right. But what, they, what they're doing is um, they're actually looking in the face of the Messiah, the one that they've been hoping for since Genesis, and, and they're saying, you're not the guy, go away, you're from the devil. And, and, and this group of Israelites band together with the beast. Remember that seven-headed, ten-horned beast from Revelation uh, 13? It begins, it begins in, Babel, in, in uh, Rome, right? And so they band yes. together with Rome, and they put Jesus on the cross. And, and they're definitely not following the Lamb. So even though they're by name children of Abraham, they've got the right name, they're not following the Lamb. So they're not the remnant. The people that are the remnant are the 12 apostles and the 70 who followed Jesus and the 120 that were in the upper room, right? Those are the the remnant, right? Right. And they have a mission, take the gospel to the world. Now, um, think about the impact of those 12 apostles and the the few others that were there with them. Mm -hmm. In one generation, one lifetime, the gospel swept throughout the entire world because God had given them a mission. And so I think when we look at the end-time people of God, we're not looking at a denomination that saves, because Israel, the the Israelites were never saved because of their name. Not a single one was saved because of their name. Abraham was saved because he believed, and and his faith was counted to him as righteousness, right? um, He was saved because he followed the Lamb, and that's the same at the end of time. And it doesn't matter what stripe of religion that you're from. If you follow the Lamb, you're going to be part of God's kingdom. But there is a prophetic group of people. And that prophetic group of people, based on what we talked about on Wednesday night, have a few characteristics. They follow the Lamb. They keep the commandments of God. They have the testimony of Jesus, which we're going to talk about um, tomorrow morning. Like there's, there's some very important qualities. Um, it, it, it's a group of people that comes up after the um, 1260-year period, because they've been in the wilderness all this time. God's, that woman has been in the wilderness until this uh, 1260-year period is done. And then that, the Bible suggests we need to look for a group of people that are paying attention to 
um, obe- obeying God and following the Lamb and having the Father's character in their, in their minds, things like this. And, and so when I look around, the only group of people I can find, and I've done a bit of digging, the only group of people I can find that are doing this and that are a worldwide movement taking this message of the three angels to the whole world is a Seventh-day Adventist church. But I just want to clarify, there's no church that will ever save you. Jesus is the only Savior of mankind. There is no other name given among men whereby, whereby we must be saved, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so there are going to be Seventh-day Adventists in the, in the uh, end when everything is said and done who have not followed the Lamb and they've been part of a, a religion for the namesake only. Their, their parents were part of the religion, and so they, they um, got raised up in it. But they never gave their hearts to Jesus. And in spite of hearing the truth of God's Word, they ignored it, or they shunned it, or they kicked it to the curb. And, and as a result, even though they're a Seventh-day Adventist in name, Jesus is going to turn to them like He said, uh, about some in, in Matthew 25, and he'll say, I, I never knew you. I think that's pretty sobering. But the, the exciting thing is, just like in Israel's time when Jesus was there and right before he, he went to the cross, he said, other sheep I have that are not of this fold. And he's pointing out that it's not about being part of Abraham's children. Right. It's not about being part of a denomination. It's about following the Lamb. But my personal conviction is that for me to follow the Lamb, I got to be part of this group of people that are taking the gospel to the world, and I think it's super exciting. So that's the choice I've made, and uh, hopefully that clarifies. No, um, not only Seventh-day Adventists go to heaven. And, and oh, I should tell, tell you one more point. In Revelation 7, it describes 144,000, and uh, he hears this, this number, 144,000, blah, blah, blah. Revelation 14 describes the details, like they've got the Father's name written in their forehead, they follow the Lamb, there's no deceit in their mouth, they keep the commandments of God, they have the faith of Jesus, the testimony of Jesus. Um, so all of these details is what it gives us about this group of people. And it says, importantly, that they were redeemed from among men, which means that you and I can be part of that group, right? And, uh, and so what's the point? What's the point of the end-time group of people that God has called? We, we uh, answered a question a, a long time ago. It seems like a long time ago anyway. 144,000, are they a literal number or are they a symbolic number? And I said they're symbolic because every time God numbers His people, He's numbering them for a purpose. There's a mission. There's a war. And the war that we have right now, the, the, the revelation war, is the war of worship. Who are you going to worship? Are you going to follow the beast or are you going to follow the lamb? And so he, he commissions a group of people to take these three angels' messages in Revelation 14, right after the description of this group of people are the, these three messages, and he commissions them to take that to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. And in Revelation 7, he hears this group of people, and then immediately in verse 9, he says, I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number, of all the nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And, and it's significant. They're not standing there in judgment. They're standing there clothed in white robes, and they have palm branches in their hands, and they are, they are praising their saving King. You know what that tells me? That tells me that God has commissioned a group of people, which I believe are the Seventh-day Adventist Church, to take the gospel to the world, and the reward of their labor the, the victory in that battle they fight, that spiritual warfare they fight, is a great multitude of people that end up in heaven as a result. So, are Seventh-day Adventists going to be the only ones that are there? No, nah, there's going to be lots of people that have all kinds of different religions, religious backgrounds or no religious background at all that are going to hear the gospel message in the last hours and say, me too, and they're going to follow the Lamb too. Mm-hmm. And He's going to say, absolutely, come. Good, very good.
Okay, we have uh, another question. In Romans 14, 10 and 11, it says that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And the Lord says, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. When does this happen? So there's, that, that's a great question, and there's lots of, lots of details. So I'm going to try to make it as, as succinct as possible, and I'll tell you in this way. There are three judgments the Bible seems to talk about. The first judgment is the one you find in Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 to 10 and verse 22, and in, also in Daniel eight 14. They're talking about the same time period. This is the judgment that begins in 1844. Um, it's the uh, heavenly day of atonement uh, that, that period of judgment that was um, illustrated every year in Israel is now going on in heaven. And this judgment time, the Bible says that everybody is going to be um, evaluated, right? And I would, like to, I would like to suggest this is kind of an investigative judgment, much like a, a um, criminal trial would have with lawyers that are debating both sides. And Jesus is called our advocate, and Satan, the actual name Satan, means the accuser, or accuser of the brethren, as he's called in one place. And so you've got lawyers, Jesus, the advocate, Satan, the accuser, that are going over all the cases of mankind all, all, through all history. And, uh, and Jesus says, my blood. When everybody, whenever anybody said, I want Jesus to be my Savior, he, he says, my blood. And Satan accuses them, and he says, no, I, my record is in place of theirs. Right? This is the investigative judgment. At the end of that period, Jesus comes. The second coming happens, and all of the saints um, are taken to heaven. But the Bible indicates there's a second judgment, and this happens during that thousand-year period that the, the people of God are in heaven. It says in 1 Corinthians 6, 3, and Revelation 24 and 5 that, um, that, that there would be a, um, a, a throne room set up and a judgment w- would be seated, and that all of the dead would be judged out of the books in heaven. And those, the, the only people who are dead are the wicked. And so it seems like the wicked are exploring the case of the, of, I mean, sorry, the righteous living in heaven are exploring the cases of the wicked and confirming the sentence of God. Um, and, and so before it happens, there is a, well, like any trial, uh, criminal trial, you have a, a, a jury of peers. Right. And it's almost like that thousand years, God's people get to be the jury that evaluate the verdict and say, Absolutely, that's, that's true. They verify that verdict, and they come back, and this is before the execution of judgment. So, before they're sent to prison, before the, you know, whatever the, the results of the judgment might be, mm-hmm. there's a jury. And so, I think that that's what the Bible describes in this period in 1 Corinthians 6 and Revelation 20. But then there's a final phase of judgment, what you might call an executive phase of judgment where you execute the judgment that has been determined, the sentence. And the sentence, of course, is death, and the Bible calls it the second death. But the, the um, events in Revelation 20 verses 7 to 15 are described in this way. There's a, um, the, Satan is released from his prison because the wicked are raised from, their dead, uh, from being dead, and they are said to be in the second resurrection or what uh, Jesus calls the resurrection of condemnation. So it's the resurrection after the thousand years. They're raised from the dead. Satan then goes and mingles with people, and, and he and his wicked angels try to gather all the, 
the, the great warriors and to organize people for battle because at the same time that the wicked are raised, Jesus has just come down from heaven with the new Jerusalem. And this, you can read this in Revelation 20, verses 7 to 15. And so the new Jerusalem is here on earth. Jesus is here. All the saints are here. All the angels are here. And, and the wicked can see the reward of the righteous, and, and Satan stirs them up to go and battle against God. And that's what you find. I'm, I'm not making it up. It's just right there, plain as, as anything in Revelation 20. So it, it, they, they go to battle against God, and I think it's at this point that um, that verse in uh, Romans 14 is, um, is being described, that every knee would bow, right? There's a judgment, and, and we've talked about those three phases, but right before this final judgment, you can't avoid the reality that Jesus is God, that the new Jerusalem is a righteous reward for those who follow Jesus, and that the wicked don't deserve it because they haven't given their hearts to Christ, and they've rebelled against Him instead. And so they, the Bible seems to indicate that everyone would bow, even the wicked, even Satan, even the evil angels, and, and say, you are God. But their hearts haven't changed because the next thing that happens is they stand up and try to take the city by force. Mm-hmm. So nothing has changed. Right. And the Bible indicates that at that point, fire will come down out of God from heaven and devour them. And that will be the end of evil It'll be the end of the, all the stuff that sin has brought into the world. It'll be the end of, of suffering and pain and sorrow and sickness and death. All of those things, all tears will be wiped away and God will make all things new. Good. So I think that's, yeah. the, that's the timing. Yep. Thank you. Um, I think you want to do oh, something yeah, 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 on yeah. graduation. <gasps> we only have one of them here. I have Tanya and Shinji having finished the, um, the series of Discovering Revelation Bible Studies, and I don't see Tanya, so Shinji, can you come up here? <laughs> so uh, we've, we have those um, small studies that kind of are fill-in-the-blanks. Come on up, yeah. They're, they're, they've got this fill-in-the-blank thing, and, um, and Shinji, you have, you have done a, a large portion of those, 75, 80% or more of them. And uh, I just want to say, well done. Um, and, and I want to affirm you for going through that study. And here's a diploma. <laughs> now, I, I just want to say that the, one of the reasons that we want to make an affirmation of this, of this effort is because it's in our personal time studying the Bible that we have the opportunity for the Holy Spirit to grow us. And what I'm doing right now, I'm telling you truth. I believe it's true, but, but the Bible encourages you to go back and make sure that it is. Don't take my word for it. Go study it out for yourself. And so that's the intention of those Bible studies. Go study it for yourself, double check, make sure I'm saying the right stuff from the word. And, uh, and then the question time is for you to push back and say, hey, you didn't say this right, or what about that? Um, and, and so I just appreciate Shinji for, for taking that effort. God bless you. And then also we have a giveaway. Ooh, before we, before we give anything away, okay. do you have it? I do. Well, it's in my chair down there. I, I forgot it. You want me to go get <laughs> go it? Go get it and I'll talk okay. about this. Okay. <laughs> so we have some, uh, some new sharing stuff. Um, this one is a, a great magazine. It's called Amazing Health, Eight Principles for a Healthy Life. And, and it's not just um, um, uh, don't eat crab. <laughs> it, it talks about some amazing principles that God has given us in the Bible that 
are designed to keep us from disease. Some really great positive stuff. Um, this is called uh, a symphony of flavors, and it, I believe this was put together by, yeah, it's Bonners Ferry Adventist Church back in 2013. So these are local recipes. If you're interested in a vegetarian, uh, some vegetarian recipes, there's a few of those books there. This one's called America in Prophecy. Tonight, we're going to talk about America in Prophecy, and I think that this might be a magazine that you'll enjoy. And it just goes through a Bible study with some historical facts and details to help back it up um, about the subjects we're talking about tonight. And then this one's called Final Events. And what I just described about the judgment and uh, the, the, second, the second coming, the, the judgment, the executive phase or whatever, that's, that's in here. Seven Steps of um, the final events of Earth's history according to Scripture. So those are some interesting resources that you're welcome to grab, um, and uh, you, don't, you don't have to pay anything for them. You can just grab them. Good. This, okay. This is our giveaway. All right, so our giveaway. Here, you want to take those down when yes. you go, and you can put them back on the table. Sure. This one's called Final Empire, and uh, true to my theme, it's a, a DVD uh, series from Sean Boonstra about, well, it's about America— in Bible prophecy. So there's a, a video and, a, DV, and a, a book there. And who do we get to give this to? Uh, Sinji. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> the man of the night. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. Well, we got our pre- preliminaries done with. Now, I just want to say, you guys were so good to me on Wednesday night. I took an extra long time, didn't I? We covered a big subject, and, uh, and we went through the Bible, and, uh, and I just appreciate you sticking with it. And I didn't even see you falling asleep. I am amazed. So tonight, we're not going to be quite so long. That's my, my, my pledge to you. <laughs> um, we're going to be looking at the mark of the beast, a subject that is of significance for our time in Earth's history, more so than at any other time in history. And then on Sabbath morning, tomorrow morning at 10.45, we're going to explore a subject called the testimony of Jesus. We've been talking about this last generation of God's people on earth, uh, the people that take this three angels' messages to the world, and the, the two major defining characteristics are that they keep the commandments of God and they have the testimony of Jesus. But what does that mean? What does it mean to have the testimony of Jesus? So we're going to look at that tomorrow and explore prophecy from Joel chapter 2 that says that your young men and your young women and your old men and your, it actually doesn't say old women, but anyway, it says that they're going to have visions and dream dreams and, and God's going to pour out his spirit on his people. And so we're going to talk a little bit about what it means to have God's spirit poured out. And then um, tomorrow night, the last night on earth, it's going to be a more of a personal message. You get to hear some of my story. And we're going to look at this. We've been looking at prophecy that says God has a plan for us way out in the future, that there's this second coming thing that's happening, that there's going to be time in heaven and a new earth that's going to be made and evil will be all over. And it's, it's really a wonderful, beautiful thing to, to study prophecy. But I think sometimes we can get so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. <laughs> you know, we, we, we wonder, does God, I mean, if he cares about all that end time stuff, does he care about me right now? And so I want to explore a little bit of the personal application. God has been working in your life before you ever came to these meetings, and he will be working in your life long after you leave. And, and so I want to explore that with you. What is God wanting to do in your life? And I get to tell some of my stories along the way, and hopefully they'll be interesting. So 
Um, I also wanted to tell you about a couple things. I'll mention it again tomorrow night, but we're going to be starting uh, a Tuesday night, on Tuesday night at the community thrift store. You guys know where that is? This by Le Schwab? Wayne knows. Well, you're the, you're the manager. <laughs> if you don't know, ask Wayne. Um, so at the community thrift center, six o'clock, is, am I right? Six or six, six o'clock on Tuesday nights, not this coming Tuesday, but the, the second Tuesday in June, you get to, to start that. And it's a series of Bible studies that, that um, Jeff Ponell is going to lead out in that um, take Daniel and Revelation and the sanctuary themes and, it, and just open up the Bible in really amazing ways. And we've been doing some big ideas in this series, and we can't get to all of this stuff. I mean, just think about it. We've got uh, we haven't, we haven't touched Revelation 10 or 11 yet, or even Revelation 9. We haven't looked at the trumpets. We, didn't, we, we just did a cursory overview of the seven churches. Um, we'll, we'll get into a little tiny bit of Revelation 18, not really anything into 19, just because we don't have time um, to, to dive into every nitty-gritty detail. But once a week, in more of an intimate setting, a small group there, um, you're going to get to dive into some more of the details in, in the Bible. And I think that's going to be a really good study. So I encourage you to join that. Um, the other thing we're going to do is on Sabbath mornings at 9.30 up at the church, I'm going to lead out in a, in a little study group, and we're going to explore some Bible themes um, throughout the process of this coming year. And, uh, and it's going to look at, I'm calling it a new here class like, if you're new here and you, you just want to explore the Bible deeper and figure out what it is to be a Christian or what it is to be part of a church or whatever, then that's going to be a great place for you to come. Uh, come and hang out with me. You get to ask any crazy question that comes to your mind is a good question to ask, and we'll, we'll explore that. So if you're reading through your Bible and you have a question, we'll, we'll get to answer some of those questions there. And we'll have a, an organized Bible study to go through so we get to explore some subjects that you might have covered before or you might not have heard of yet. Um, so that one's, that one's going to be good. And then we also have um, Brent Moots, who is just up here with me. Brent um, runs a Bible school, an online Bible school. And, uh, and you could join that if you want to, to kind of study this more on your own. There's a, a mail-in type thing. Just, Brent, raise your hand. There you go. Just ask Brent, um, can I join that? And he'll get you hooked up. Um, and if, if you want some more one-on-one attention, I'm happy to come to your house and do Bible studies with you too. So there's lots of options going from here. Um, I, I, don't wanna, I don't want you to feel like when we're done with this, we're done with God's Word. So tonight, the mark of the beast. Um, we've, we've been looking at the Bible for factual information. We want to understand truth. Truth is a really good thing, but the Bible is also something that God wants you to interact with on a personal level. He wants you to read it and see it as God's Word to you today. And just ask Wayne to tell you a story or two. Wayne, is God's Word a living document that interacts with your life today? Absolutely. And God wants that to be a living document for you. So I want to encourage you to, to study the Bible I want to encourage you that to, to not just take the factual stuff we've been exploring now and try to hunt for true nuggets, but actually also take God's Word and say, what do you want me to do today? What is your Word for me, Lord? How do you want to speak to my heart? How do you want to respond to this problem that I have? And, and the subject that we're studying tonight, it's, it's a factual subject, but it, it really should connect with our hearts too. 
It, it needs to be God's Word to us, or it's not God's Word, really. It's just some theory, right? And there's a lot of theory about the mark of the beast. Probably the majority of the theory comes from Hollywood. <laughs> it seems like everything on, in Hollywood about prophecy ends up with the mark of the beast in there somewhere. 666 or, I don't know, all kinds of interesting stuff. But we want to we look at God's Word and we want to understand what are the facts and what's God's call for us. And tonight, I, I've done this a few times and I've told you before the reason I do it, and I'll tell you again, I'm going to ask you to make a decision when we're done tonight. And the reason is, when, when we are right at the cusp of a study, when we're exploring something from God's Word, God invites us to take a step in faith and to say, I believe that. Now, if you are not fully convinced, you have some information that's missing, you, want, you have some questions that need to be asked, then don't feel like you have to make a decision. Nobody's going to pressure you or twist your arm. But I want to give you the opportunity. If the Holy Spirit is saying, this is true, um, look at it in my Word, then I encourage you to take a step of faith and follow in what God is saying. So let's begin with prayer. Father in heaven, we want to surrender our hearts to you. We want to be those people that follow the Lamb. We want to, we want to be the ones that have your name, your character in our hearts, written in our minds. I pray that you would forgive us of our, of our sins, especially me as I'm sharing this right now. Uh, please give me clarity of thought and help me to communicate your word in a way that's, that um, uh, is understandable, in a, a way that you would be pleased. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. There are so many different opinions about this particular subject tonight. And, you know, a hundred different books you might find in the, in the bookstore, and you get a hundred different ideas. Everybody has a little bit of nuance about what they think the mark of the beast is. My guess is that if you went to all... 20 or so, 30 churches, whatever there are in the Boundary County area, you would probably find a different idea about the mark of the beast from every single pastor that you talk to. Everybody's going to have just a, a little tweak. In fact, there's probably going to be a good number of them that have heard so many theories that they've decided that none of it makes sense, and they'll just tell you the shrug, and they'll say it's not really important. I was just on a website from a Christian ministry yesterday, and, uh, and they, they, I, I was... I was reading an article, and um, I wanted to, to, to suggest a, a little bit of an edit. Um, I don't do that often, but every once in a while. And so I went on there, and I'm going to post this thing, and, and in the instructions about what you should and shouldn't post, um, it says, um, here's a number of things that um, we don't want to talk about. We have no opinion on whatsoever. And, and among them were um, end-time prophecy and the Sabbath, and a couple other points. And I thought, such an interesting statement that they're making. We're tired of talking about it. It doesn't matter at all. We don't care. <laughs> and I think you'll probably find some of that. And what, what I'd like to do is I'd like to say, what does the Bible say? Let's actually care about the, the plain teaching of God's Word. And if it's not plain in God's Word, then let me know. But I, I think this makes sense to me. Back in the day, I'm talking about like 1,800 years ago, a guy named Arrhenius, he's called an early church father. And Arrhenius, he taught something that I've taught you. He said that the beast of Revelation 13 would grow from the Roman Empire. What I'm telling you isn't a new idea. But then uh, in 1100s, a guy named Joachim Fior, uh, Fiore, I should say, Joachim Fiore, 
um, he, was, he was saying the exact same thing that Arrhenius was saying, except for he had had a few hundred years to look back and see, yes, indeed, this apostate church of the Middle Ages did grow out of Rome, and it is that beast from Revelation 13. Archbishop Regensburg said the same thing publicly in 1200s. Luther and Calvin and Zwingli said it, and Wesley said it, and Charles Spurgeon said it, and Dwight L. Moody said it. Up until about 150 years ago, the, the church, with the exception of the leadership of the Roman Catholic Church, were pretty united on the fact that Revelation 13 pointed to the Christian church in the Dark Ages specifically those, the organized Christian church led from Rome. So then you have this counter-reformation because you've got all these guys like Luther and Zwingli and Huss and Jerome and, and these guys, they're saying, hey, look what Revelation says. And, and the, well, the Catholic church didn't really like what they were saying. And so we have this thing called the counter-reformation. And I've mentioned that before. About the 1500s, you had these two guys named Ribera and Alcazar. And Alcazar, you might remember, came up with an idea that all prophecy was, was back in the day of the prophet. So um, most of or all of Daniel's prophecies would have been fulfilled in the time of Babylon and Medo-Persia. And that was it, all back then. And, and uh, you know, some people still believe that. Most of them reject things like miracles and, and even the idea of prophecy. <coughs> Excuse me. So they, they reject all this stuff, and, they, and they're happy to believe what Alcazar had, had, had suggested to try to get the heat off of the Catholic Church. But then there's this other guy, Ribera, and Ribera suggested something that became a lot more popular, and that's that everything happens in the future. And today you'll see a lot of, a lot of people talking about um, the, um, the secret rapture where all the saints go to heaven. And then there's a, a beast power an antichrist power, and, and he rules the world, essentially, for seven years of tribulation, after which um, God comes and a thousand years of peace happens, or some variation of that. And, and the nice thing about that theory is it takes all of the focus off of the church right now. In fact, all the focus off the church at any point of any time, because the church is in heaven. It does, it's not the church, clearly, because everybody gets raptured. So we have these two theories, two popular forms of teaching, and, uh, and, and all of it kind of takes the heat off of Rome, and none of it was something that the Christian church, the Protestant church, taught until about 150 years ago. And it was really in the 1800s that the futurism got its, its um, foothold in modern Christian uh, mainstream Christianity. And, and it turns out that that, that, that uh, happening, the fact that that was, was happening, was part of prophecy. Look in Revelation chapter 12. Now, when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her, her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time. The fact that in the 1800s, we had something going on that was taking the focus, taking the heat off the Catholic Church, is, is illustrated here. There is a persecution period, and then, and then after that persecution period, it's cover up, hide. And, 
And she's, um, she's being protected from the presence of the serpent, it says there in Revelation 12. Now, we've looked at this in, in quite a bit of detail. We've looked at it this time, times and half a time, which is 1,260 days or 42 months. And of course, 1,260 days is also 1,260 years in prophecy. Um, so, we looked all across the Western world and we explored this woman in, in the wilderness during that 1260-year period. We saw the Valdo in, in France, the Waldensians, and we saw the Ethiopian Christians in northern um, Africa who were keeping the Sabbath, and we saw the Celts up in Britain also keeping the Sabbath, the Huguenots in France, um, key believers that were holding on to God's Word against all odds. At one point, um, the, uh, the church came in during that time, and they, they wanted to stomp out all of these lights. There's this one group called the Albigenses. You should say that word just because it's so much fun. Can you say it, Albigenses? The Albigenses were in Italy. And uh, in one particular town, um, the, the uh, Catholic church, the Pope, sent his crusaders. Have you heard of the crusades? The Crusades started by taking um, soldiers from all over Europe and, and taking them to Jerusalem to drive out Islam from Jerusalem, and they did. And then they went and they drove out the, the Moors, again, Islam, Muslims, from, France, uh, from Spain. And they were successful in that. When they got done with, uh, with Islam, they thought, well, what are we going to do with all these armies that are working for the church? And so they decided that they would redirect their focus, and they started attacking these Christians that weren't in line with, with uh, the official church teaching. And so the, the Albigenses, they, they believed in God's Word and God's Word alone, and they didn't follow all of the practices of the Catholic Church, and the Catholic Church didn't like it, and so they sent soldiers. And the, the record goes, this is written down, it's like the 12, 1300s, something like this, the, um, one of the lieutenants says to, the, to the, the, the general that's leading this group that are coming to attack the, um, the Albigenses, he says, um, you know, what, what should we do when we get there? He says, well, we'll just tell the Catholics to send the Albigenses out. And so they do. They, they surround and they, they call in and they say, send those Albigenses out. And, uh, and the, the, the Catholic believers that were in the town thought that was a bad idea. And so they said, no, we're not going to do that. And uh, the, the general says, um, do it in the name of, of, uh, of the Pope. And they said, no. And so the lieutenant turns to the general and says, so what do we do? Um, and the, the general turns to the lieutenant and says, kill them all, the Lord will decide. How do we know which one's a Catholic and which one's an Albigense? He says, doesn't matter, kill everybody. And that was the attitude of the Crusades. They, they at one point went to the Waldensians, the Valdo, up in the mountains. They were in the valleys, and they, they climbed the, the mountains to get away from the soldiers. They, they hid in caves, and they worshiped in secret. And uh, one time, there's some amazing miracle stories about what God did in the, the, those mountains. Um, one time, they were, they were running, essentially, up the mountains with the, the soldiers hot on their tail, and they had women and children. It wasn't just like the Valdensians had, had soldiers that were, were fighting back. They were just running away. They go up there, and, uh, and they're praying, Lord, please hide us. And a, um, a fog settled on the mountain so that the soldiers couldn't find them. And that was there for, for um, a couple days, and they finally gave up and, uh, and went away. 
But they came back after the fog was gone, and they, they drove them to the edge of a cliff and threw them off one by one, women, kids, husbands, fathers. You don't believe in the official teaching of the church will throw you off. And so, for 1260 years, they did this. It began in 538 when the authority, the, the Justinian, the Emperor Justinian, who had moved from Rome to Constantinople, I guess Constantine officially did, but he, he kind of abandoned Rome. He gave the keys to Western Europe to the Pope in, in uh, 533, but it wasn't until 538 that all three of those nations that were standing in the way of, of the, the Roman church um, taking control, it wasn't until they were destroyed um, with the help of Justinian's armies that the, the Roman church was able to take power in 538. And so, from 538 to, fi- to 1798, you have this 1260-year period. And do you remember what happens in 1798? Napoleon happens. Good, good one, Michelle. The Pope is taken captive. A guy named Berthier, the general there, um, he came in and took Pope Pius VI off the throne, and the, the Pope died in captivity. The, the Catholic Church didn't have any more property because Napoleon took it all back for the, the, the local governments. And, and so, we have this period of time where we can see the pure Church of God, the ones following the Bible and following the Lamb, hiding and then in, 17, in, in, in that 1798 period of time, there, there's something that goes on. Revelation 12, 15. So the serpent spewed out water out of his mouth like a flood. Can, can you tell me, somebody, what does water represent in prophecy? People. And we found that from Revelation 17, didn't we? I think it's 1710. So it's people or nations, tribes, right? We know that this is populated stuff. So, when the serpent spews out water, what's he spewing out? People. He, it's like a flood goes to, to trample God's people. And I just described what that flood is. It's the crusades and that army of people that went to, to snuff out God's true church. And, and, uh, when you see what's going on, you realize that Satan is trying to, by force, make everybody follow his plan. And that's what always happens. Satan's agenda, it's always going to end up in coercion, in deceit, in force. And then we have this verse in Revelation twelve sixteen. But the, what's the word? The earth. Underline that in your Bible. That's an important word that we're going to come back to in Revelation 13. The earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of its mouth. Now, if, if waters are populated places and peoples and right, nations, then what would the earth be? Because you've got, you know, water and land, right? So, what, what's the land? Unpopulated, uh, unpopulated area, yeah. And at some point in, in history, the earth suddenly opens up to give God's people a place to run, a way to flee from persecution. And I'm just going to throw this out here, see if uh, you might uh, make the connection yourself. Was there a place in history that, that opened up kind of like a new world and allowed Christians of whatever persuasion they wanted to worship freely? The United States, yeah. 
It's right here, the new world. And, and the founding fathers of the American Republic understood very clearly what they were building. They knew they were doing something differently than what Western Europe had done. They didn't want the stuff that Western Europe um, described. And, th- and this, is, um, this is what they say. The purpose of separation of church and state is to keep forever from these shores the ceaseless strife that has soaked the soil of Europe with, the, with blood for centuries. And, and we think this is James Madison who said that. We don't know. He, we don't have an exact record, but that's what we, we think it, it was. The founding fathers of America knew what the problem was. The problem was the church had their hand in the government. The church was making laws. The church was forcing religion. And America, they were going to be a place that was different. And some people, they want to they push back on that idea and say, no, 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 that was never the intent Religious freedom was not the purpose of the founding of the United States. But when you look at prophecy, God says that the earth would open up and provide a place for, the, for His church to flee to. I love these words inscribed on the Statue of Liberty by Emma Lazarus. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless tempest tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. It, it almost sounds like something Jesus said, doesn't it? Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Hmm. In the beginning, America was a Christ-like country. We believed that, that people should worship according to their conscience and be free to choose God or not according to their own conscience. We believed that people were free to serve God as their king with no human inter- intermediaries, no pope, no king, nobody to force them. And if you follow history, you discover these principles that gave us uh, th- these were the principles that gave us the American Constitution. These were the, the principles that, that drove to the, the, the writing of that, that document. And you can trace that all the way back to the Reformers, the ones who said the Bible and the Bible only, sola scriptura, through faith alone, by grace alone, sola fide, sola grazie. They, they said those were the things that, that ended up building the structure of a constitution that would give us freedom. And the the most amazing things about the American Republic would be, I think, the timing of its appearance. There is no coincidence that it's 1776, just about 22 years before the Pope would be taken down off of his throne and the the beast of Revelation 13 would receive that deadly wound that, that America said we are going to be free and independent right at the end of this 1260-year period, you have a place opening up for God's people to go. And so Napoleon's general marches into the city in Rome in 1798. The American Republic is founded in 1776. Um, You've got this almost happening right at the same time. Freedom. Freedom for God's people. And in Revelation 13.3, you get this, this statement. I saw one of his heads as if it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was... And suddenly, you start to go, the story's not over yet. 
It, sound, it was sounding good, but the story's not over yet. His deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. Everything that's happened so far, verses 1 and 2 of Revelation 13, have already been fulfilled. That's past history. Those 1,260 years are, are done and gone. But, but the Bible says that the wound would be healed, and the entire world would wonder after the beast. Did the beast re- receive a deadly wound? Absolutely. And after Pius was removed from his throne and, and the church lost its lands, it looked as if the beast were dead. There would be no coming back for the Catholic Church. Protestantism was gaining foothold and, and freedom, and America was there, and um, other nations, because of the influence of France and, and, uh, and America, were starting to think about democracy, and, and things were looking really good when it came to the religious front. But the Bible says that it would come back to life. The deadly wound would be healed. And now the question that we need to answer tonight is, is there any evidence that that might be happening? Is the deadly wound being healed? And the answer is yes. All the way back in 1929, Mussolini and Gaspari signed a historic Roman pact that gave the, the, the Vatican and uh, the Pope um, a uh, land, sovereignty, and uh, the ability, well, to have their own government, to be self-governed. And it was this huge story that was all around the world. And I don't think it's really surprising that uh, the, the headlines of the day were heal, heal wound of many years. I don't think that's a coincidence. Maybe it is. But if it is, it's a very interesting coincidence because the Bible says that his deadly wound would be healed. And if you go back to the newspapers from that time, you'll find that it wasn't just in this one, um, that you'll find this type of talk all over the world. And, and then you have this from that same period of time in the Catholic Advocates. And this is just a few weeks later, a guy describing his moment there, standing as this thing was being signed. It is noon on Monday, the fateful February 11, and we are standing by the obelisk at the north door of the Mother Church of Churches of the World, St. John's. We have watched the first Cardinal Gaspari and the Premier Mussolini drive into Lateran Palace, and they are now sealing the accord between the Holy See and Italy. I do not deny it. I am in a tremble at the pregnant greatness of the moment. For my mind is dwelling not only on the piazza or on the scene behind the palace windows. My thoughts are shooting out like the shuttle of a loom out from Rome to the four corners of the globe, weaving a fabric of the reverberations which this, and and you might underline this one, freeing of the Pope will awaken in every country. 1929, things begin to look like there's a resurrection going on. It's not at all surprising that you would have a death and a resurrection in something that is called the Antichrist. Didn't Jesus die and was raised from the dead? Satan loves to counterfeit and and conceal and misconstrue things, and so you have this Antichrist power, this beast from Revelation 13, which receives a wound that makes it look as though it's dead and then it comes back to life as though it's been resurrected. And now the, the freeing of the Pope, the Catholic Church, has the power to do all, a lot of things that it had done in the past. Maybe not everything. It was, it was coming back slowly. But in the last few years, the Church of Rome has been quite actively reasserting its dominance in the world. 
In 1998, Pope John Paul II, um, he was uh, getting ready for the millennium, and he issued a papal bull called the Incarnatius Mysterium. And in that document, he reaffirmed the practice of indulgences. If you don't know what that is, that is the practice where you take money and you pay for your sins to be forgiven. What, what do you think Jesus would have said if somebody came to him to pay him for forgiveness? What do you think the, the disciples would have said? Well, I'll tell you what they said. There's a guy named Simon who, who came to, to, to Jesus, or to, to Peter, I think, and um, Peter and James, I forget exactly who it was, but he came to them and he says, um, you guys are able to cast out demons and, and work miracles in the name of Jesus. Can, can I have the Spirit? And he brings them money. And do you know what we call it when somebody brings you money for forgiveness or spiritual favors or something like this? We call it simony, because that man's name was Simon. And Peter turned to him, and he, and he rebuked him with one of the strongest rebukes that you find in the New Testament. Absolutely not. It is not for sale. And yet, the Catholic Church brings back what they taught in the Dark Ages, the practice of indulgence. This was, this was the issue that sparked the Reformation in, 15, in the 1500s with Martin Luther. In 1998, John Paul II also issued an affirmation of the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith. Um, Anybody know what that is? It is a very old institution in the church. It's uh, typically gone by a different name, at least it did in, uh, in the Dark Ages, and you might know what it's called when you hear the word, the Holy Office of the Inquisition. What was the Inquisition for? to protect the doctrines of the church and make sure anybody who disagreed, well, wasn't able to disagree anymore. The Inquisition was responsible for the deaths of some 30 to 50 million people in that 1260-year period. Then in 2000, the Vatican published a very interesting document. It was a document about Christian unity and uh, specifically called people to unify uh, behind the, the movement that you and I find in Revelation chapter 13. They were calling people back to Rome, and this is what they said. The Church of Christ, despite the divisions which exist among, uh, among Christians, continues to exist fully only in the Catholic Church, and on the other hand, that outside her structure, many elements can be found of sanctification and truth that is in those churches and ecclesial communities which are not yet in full communion with the Catholic Church. In other words, they're expecting and, and designing that those other um, communities, ecclesial communities, would rejoin the Catholic Church. Hmm. Not yet. Well, have you and I seen since 2000 any movements in that direction? And the answer would be absolutely. The revival is probably building faster than you think. This is from The Guardian back in 2007. It says, Protestant churches yesterday reacted with dismay to a new declaration approved by Pope Benedict XVI, insisting that they were mere ecclesial communities and their ministries effectively phonies with no right to give communion. Coming just four days after the reinstatement of the Latin Mass, yesterday document... Uh, Yesterday's document left no doubt about the Pope's eagerness to back traditional Roman Catholic practices and attitudes. Uh, The encouragement of going back to the Latin Mass brings the Catholic Church into uh, pretty much 100% alignment with the teachings from the time of Martin Luther. 
when the Protestant Reformation first began. And and when they're talking about these other ecclesial communities, sure, there's some that are fighting back and saying, hey, we don't like it when you call, it, call us that. But notice this. In Revelation chapter 13, verse 11, he says, then I saw another beast. This is a different one. Coming up out of where? The earth. Where, where was it that the, um, the, the woman went to hide? In the earth. Is there... Is there maybe a connection between Revelation 12 and 13? I think there is. And he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. Who exactly is this second beast? Well, it, it has to come up after the, the first beast in Revelation 13, which comes up in 538. So it has to, it has to be somewhat newish, right? It's not one of the, the Western European uh, nations because they were before um, the, uh, the Vatican, the Roman Catholic Church. So um, they, they wouldn't qualify. And it's coming up from the earth, an unpopulated place. So it has to be something in the new world, right? And, uh, and notice that it says that it had two horns like a lamb. And we talked already about the United States being a, a, a Christ-like nation when we first began. But notice that it says that it speaks like a dragon, just like Rome. You've got this mix of uh, Christianity and, and the dragon, paganism and, and Christianity. And notice that it says, that, and he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. Uh, this second beast is going to drive the world back towards the first beast. Now, if it's truly the United States um, that, that is um, being indicated in this, then we're going to have to see, does the United States work to bring the world back into alignment with that first beast? But let's look at the identifying marks just to make sure that the second beast is actually the United States. First of all, it comes up from the earth, um, the place where the persecuted people of God went right? Second, it's a lamb-like, puts on the appearance of being Christian. And thirdly, it has no crowns on its horns. Um, and you'll notice, uh, what, what does a crown represent? Monarchy, Monarchy yeah, king. The, the horn represents some kind, of a, um, some kind of a political power, but without crowns, we're talking about something, because it's in contrast to the one who has crowns, right? Ten horns and crowns. And now this one doesn't have a crown. I think the only thing that fits, the only thing that remotely fits in this time in history is 1776, Declaration of Independence, the United States, a democratic republic that says freedom of religion is a priority. Let's just consider some, some of that evidence. Um, it comes up to, um, at the end of the Dark Ages, one nation under God, we call it. Um, it's a refuge for the persecuted. It's a republic with no king. I, I can't find anything else that would match. But something strange is happening. The Bible predicts this alliance with the United States and, and Rome, and, and that would be an unthinkable thing for 150 years. Nobody would have considered that that would have been possible at all. But something strange begins to happen. And this alliance with the Bishop of Rome starts to grow. In the 20th century, um, history is pretty clear about what happens. 
Back in 1991, Father Malachi Martin published a book about the political ambitions of the Vatican, and it said some interesting things that probably at the time were not exciting for the, the Catholic Church to be spreading around and letting people know about. But here's what he says. It was, uh, sorry, uh, this is the, the name of this book. You need to catch this. It's The Keys of This Blood, Pope John Paul II versus Russia and the West for Control of the New World Order. Pope John Paul II against who? Against Russia and the West. Why Russia? Because atheistic communism was standing in the way of Catholicism gaining a foothold in Europe. And, and communism was a big deal at the time. And then you have the West. Why is the West a problem? Because the United States has a separation of church and state and a, a, a fundamental um, expectation that we would have the freedom to exercise our religious conscience according to our own dictates and to not be controlled. But this is what he says. The goal of the church is a geopolitical structure for the society of nations designed and maintained according to the ethical plans and doctrinal outlines of Christianity as taught by the Roman pontiff as the earthly vicar of Christ. He was telling, he was telling us that Pope John Paul II's agenda was absolutely clear. He wanted to provide a political structure for the whole world. He wanted that deadly wound to be completely healed and power again. But those two obstacles existed, communism in, the, in Russia or the USSR and the West and religious liberty in the United States. So if we look at history, um, which of those two obstacles is no longer among us? Russia, the communism. I mean, sure, communism exists, but the, United, the, the USSR is no longer in effect, and, and the, the impact of communism is uh, rolled back considerably. And the Vatican knew that it couldn't topple Russia by itself. It needed to attack these two fronts, but it, it started with communism, and it couldn't do it alone. It needed, it needed a power that had military might that would stand behind the Pope and give it some teeth. And, uh, and what happens, Reader's Digest tells us in 1990 about it. Um, in 1981, the communist bloc got another shock. A new American president, Ronald Reagan, began fulfilling his promise to challenge the Soviets, not, not placate them. Over the next few years, he accelerated the military buildup and announced the Strategic Defense Initiative the Soviets' confidence was shaken. Military pressure from America and its Western allies had caused the Soviets to flinch. And, and Pope John Paul sees Ronald Reagan and he says, that's my guy. That's who I need standing at my back. And, and so in July of 1982, they met to discuss plans and to figure things out. And uh, they, they decided that they needed an insider, somebody that was from inside the USSR um, to help them. And they found that there's this guy in the Pope's home country of Poland, a man named, um, I'm going to probably get this wrong, but I'll try, Lekwuenza. Lekwuenza. Ah, you guys know how to say it better than I do. <laughs> he happened to be the leader of Poland's Solidarity Society. And... Uh, well, Reagan and the Pope sent him all kinds of money and uh, basically anything he needed, fax machines, moral support, phone lines, cash. If he needed it, they got it to him and they backed him up. And of course, the Soviets saw what was happening. They didn't like this society that was growing and they, they were going to send troops to shut it down. And you know what the Pope said? 
The Pope said that if they do that, then he himself would go and stand with them in front of those tanks, and, and uh, Russia was not excited about that. They didn't want the public face of the church to be standing in front of their tanks, and so they, they secretly um, sought to kill him. It was one of the biggest high-stakes political games in modern history, and, and here's the story again from Reader's Digest. With the Pope's support, Solidarity was formed, and John Paul II sent word to Moscow that if Soviet forces crushed Solidarity, he would go to Poland and stand with his people. The Soviets were so alarmed, they hatched a plot to kill him. When the communist government fell, the impact on what Eastern Europe was electrifying. How did communism fall? Was it just because finances weren't the greatest? No. It was because the first and second beasts of Revelation 13 ganged up against um, the, the USSR. Here's the headline of February 24, 1992. Holy Alliance, how Reagan and Pope conspired to assist Poland's solidarity movement and hasten the demise of communism. Now, now think about this carefully. Almost 200 years ago, the book of Revelation uh, 2,000 years ago, <laughs> the book of Revelation said that there would be an alliance. And back in 1980, nobody would have considered this alliance to be even remotely possible. But by 1982, the alliance had happened. And, and then you have, not very much longer after that, Ronald Reagan standing in front of the, the wall in Berlin and saying, take down this wall. And they did. It also means that the Vatican's first obstacle to getting worldwide power was, was gone. And the alliance is there. What's the other obstacle? The other obstacle is freedom of religion in the United States. And, and you know what? They don't have to fight any battles. There is no tanks that are needed. All they need to do is change our ideas. What are our values? Why do we exist, right? And, and if you just look around you, you can, you can tell that the issues of the freedom of religion are somewhat eroding. And it doesn't take much to look into the last year's experience and realize that uh, things like health concerns can be used to limit freedoms in the church. Some people say that there's never going to be, um, or that, that there never was freedom of religion. But I just want to go back and look at what Thomas Jefferson said to make sure we know that our foundation, our roots in this country, was freedom of religion. Believing that religion is a matter which lies solely between man and his God, that he, own, that he owes account to none other for his faith or his worship, that the legitimate powers of government reach actions only and not opinions, I contemplate with sovereign reverence that act of the whole American people which declared that their legislature should make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, thus building a wall of separation between church and state. When America was formed, we had this wall, this wall of separation that kept church and state apart. Um, but amazingly, in recent decades, loud voices are calling for the removal of that wall. Richard McMunn, the editor of Columbia Magazine, led the charge in February of 1989, saying, if Thomas Jefferson were alive today, I believe he would not only lead the struggle to scale the wall of separation, but that he would also provide the ladders. Now ask yourself, why would a prominent 
Roman Catholic voice want the wall of separation to come down because it's the only thing preventing them from taking control in this area too. American Cardinal Anthony Bevilacqua, I think, (laughs) said this, the time has come to restore the vital relationship between the church and the state, between religion and law. Now, has there ever in all of human history been a time when people had, or rather religion, had the rule of law in their pocket and not messed people's lives up? Not a single time, because every time we use force, we are using the principles of the dragon every single time. Towards the end of the 20th century, more and more voices called for the uniting of the church and state. And they weren't just Roman Catholic voices anymore. Even the president of the Southern Baptist, W.A. Criswell, said, I believe this notion of the separation of church and state was the figment of some infidel's imagination. More and more voices called for the abolishment of that wall of separation. And to be honest, I, I can understand why. I mean, when you think about it, look around at the world today. Do we see a United States that has suffered moral decay? Have we abandoned the principles that, seem, that, that our founding fathers seem to suggest were the reason for our Constitution, those Christian principles of the Reformation? Absolutely, we have. And, and so Christians, understandably, want to have a voice. I was listening to a podcast not very long ago about a man who became one of the most powerful political actors in the United States. And, and he, you probably don't know his name, and I've forgotten it, but he, he says, or he, he was the guy that when, when they heard that, that Donald Trump might be running for president, he was the guy that called up Donald Trump and said, are you serious about this? Because if you are, you need to come meet the evangelicals. And this is the guy who brought a desperate group of people from all different opinions and kind of hippie Christians in a way, together to talk about issues politically in the same voice. And he's the one that took Donald Trump to the evangelical church, and it's because Donald Trump said that he'd like to champion the evangelical church's agenda that the evangelical church voted as a block and put him in as the president. Now, I don't care what you think about Donald Trump, but the reality of the church moving politics is a present reality. This statement comes from the head of one of the biggest evangelical TV networks in the world, a guy you might know as Paul Crouch. I'm eradicating the word Protestant even out of my vocabulary. I'm not protesting anything. It's time for Catholics and non-Catholics to come together as one in the Spirit and one in the Lord. Should Christians be united? Absolutely. But not based on compromise. We don't take God's Word and, and just crumple up parts of it and throw it to the side tape bunches of pages together so we never flip past them or we never, you know, look at them anymore. We, we, we don't destroy the truth from God's Word in order to have unity. We, we become united as we study God's Word and God's truth together. Here's another surprising quote. Again, a prominent Christian leader, this one, Robert Schuller. It's time for Protestants to go to the shepherd and say, what do we have to do to come home? Who is the shepherd? 
Oh, you and I would like it to be Jesus, but that is not what Robert Schuller was saying. He was saying the shepherd is the Pope, and it's time for us to go to the shepherd and ask, how do we come home? Home to who? Home to the mother church. The shepherd is not Jesus in his mind right now, in, in that quote. Just a few years ago now, it's a, a huge gathering of people, evangelical Christians, went viral on YouTube. You might have seen the clip. And, and it was a video invitation from Pope Francis for people to come back home. Come back home, he said. He said, the Protestant Reformation is over. Catholics believe the same thing that Protestants believe, that we're saved by grace through faith. Of course, when Protestants believe that we're saved by faith, by grace through faith, rather, um, it, it's God's grace and our belief in Him. But, but when, it's, when it's the Pope talking about it, by grace through faith, it's the grace of the church meted out through the Eucharist and other sacraments, and our faith is in partaking of those sacraments. A very different definition, but he says, there's no more Reformation. We don't have anything to disagree about anymore. And guess who stood up? Hmm. Kenneth Copeland, one of the most famous Christian preachers in America, at least at the time, and probably still today. Something remarkable is happening. You might call it ecumenism, but I'm just going to call it all the world wondering after the beast. It's a fulfillment of prophecy. The Bible says that the second beast would convince the earth to return to worship the first beast. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. What's the real issue at the end of time? Worship. Who are you going to worship? Are you going to worship the beast? Are you going to worship the dragon? Are you going to worship the lamb? These, these are the questions, and it's, it's a question of allegiance. Who's your commander? Who's your commanding officer, right? Who's the, the one that, that says, left face, forward march, and you obey? Because you're going to obey somebody. You're going to follow somebody. You're going to worship somebody. We are designed to worship, and the only question is who? Are you going to, are you going to do it yourself or are you going to follow the Lamb? And, and Satan, he's going to do this by deception first, but then it says that at some point, there's going to be a death penalty, a coercive force that says, if you don't, then we're going to kill you. And, and it's not something that's new. If you look at that 1260-year period over and over and over again, you find people being thrown off cliffs and people being killed at the edge of the sword and people being lit on fire in the middle of the street because they stood for God's Word. It's not a new thing. And we might look back and say, well, you know, back in the day, people stood for truth. But, you know, truth isn't that big of a deal today. But the Bible says it is. And it's going to be the issue at the end of time. What is true? Who are you following? And, and uh, if deception fails, he points to this, the specific details about how the beast is going to do this. And it says that this second beast is going to cause all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their forehead, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Now, there's all kinds of speculation about what's going on here, and a lot of people are worried about Bitcoin, have you heard about this? Cryptocurrency is the mark of the beast. I've got to keep all of my finances 
under my, my bed. I, I actually know a guy when I was a kid. He would take bread bags, you know, the Wonder Bread bags, and he would put his cash in there, and he stored it up in the, the, the attic under his, um, under his insulation because he didn't trust the banks. And I know some people today that, that have a similar feeling. They don't trust the banks. They want to stay away from the cryptocurrency because that's going to be um, the way the beast controls buying and selling. And I just want to tell you, they've been able to control buying and selling since the 1500s, since the time of Jesus. This has never been a problem for Satan and for the dragon and for the beast, either one of them. It doesn't, you know, the first or the second beast in Revelation 13, it doesn't matter if you've got power over economy, you've got power over people, and you don't have to give them your name in order for them to have that power. You don't have to be digital or, or, or you know, you can be um, hoarding gold bullion and still end up being controlled. The point isn't about keeping control over your finances. The point of Revelation 13, 15 through 17, is about where your worship is. You know, there was that time when Elijah, he came before the king and he said, there's not going to be any rain. You guys are worshiping Babylon. <laughs> You're worshiping Baal. And, and God wants to bring you to a point of decision. So there's not going to be any rain till I say so. And he fled. And you know what? He didn't have anything but the clothes on his back. And he went to a brook, and God gave him water from the brook, and birds fed him. And the Bible says that your and my water will be sure. We don't need to worry about buying and selling. It is the least important thing for us to worry about in the time of the end. Insignificant. No, don't need to hoard your stuff. I know we live in Bonner's Ferry, and everybody's got a huge pantry, even me. But it's not going to save you. It's not going to help you. The issue is not about possessions and it's not about eating. It's about worship. Who are you following? Revelation 14 tells us about those people who follow the Lamb in the last days and they have the Father's name on their forehead. They have God's character etched in their hearts. And, and that's the part of the story nobody seems to be talking about. The solution isn't making secret hiding places under your floorboards. That is not going to be the solution to save you. The solution is Jesus. Jesus is the answer for the world today. And notice where that mark goes. The mark of God goes on the forehead. That the name of Jesus is in our minds. The character is in, in our moral reasoning place where we, in our natural hearts, moved by God's Spirit, Follow the Lamb and obey His commandments. Revelation 7, Romans 7.25 says, With the mind I myself serve the law of God. So the forehead is the symbol of our mind. Why does the mark of the beast, if the, the seal of or the, um, the, 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 the name of God goes on our foreheads, why does the mark of the beast go on our hands? In Ecclesiastes 9.10 it says, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. Our hand is the, it's the place of action. It's the symbol of acting. And so you've got the mark of the beast. Some take it as their own. It's in their minds. And some just follow it because it's the law of the land. But you've got that mark on a hand or on the forehead. So what is the mark of the beast? And this is really simple. I'm just going to cut through all of the weird stuff. And there's a lot of weird stuff out there about this. And we're going to look at what isn't the mark of the beast. <laughs> Because I think you've got to understand who doesn't have it in order to understand what it is. 
Revelation 14, 9 to 10 describes this. A third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anybody worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God. So, so those are the people that are going to deal with punishment, but there's something about this group that doesn't have the mark. And you find it in Revelation chapter 7, verses 2 and 3. Here is the patience of the saints. Oops. Well, this other group of people, Revelation 14, 12. Here's the patience of the saints. Here are those that keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. All right, here's Revelation 7. Same group of people. I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth, the sea, um, saying, do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God. Where? in their foreheads. The same place that Revelation 14 has the name of God, the seal of God is in the foreheads of these people that follow the Lamb. And, and where does the Bible, I mean, what's this seal um, all about? You read it there in Revelation 14, the seal is the Father's name, the character of God in their minds. And when you look at Exodus 34, God tells Ab- um, Moses that his character is his name. So we're not making any guesses about that. And then if you, if you keep looking in Hebrews chapter 8 and Hebrews chapter 10, the Bible says that God is writing His law in our hearts, in our minds. And, and it says that the law is a picture of God's character. So um, this, is, this is quite interesting. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 8. Moses says to the people when he's repeating the law, Deuteronomy 5 and 6 is the repetition of the law, the repeating of the law. And he he says this, you shall bind them, that's the law, as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Have you ever heard of phylacteries? Anybody heard of phylacteries? That, That thing that the guy's got on his head, that little box, that has a copy of the law in there. And now this is a very literalistic reading of this passage. Bind it around your forehead, put it on your hands. Um, That's not exactly what the Bible is intending. It's intending for us to implant it into our minds, which is why it says, talk about it when you go in your house and when you go out of your house and when you sit at the table to eat and when you get up and when you go to bed, talk about God's law because God wants it to be imprinted in our minds. Not just memorized, but he wants it to become part of our characters. And he even promises that he'll make it part of our character if we let him. Hebrews 10, 16 says this, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds, I will write them in the forehead. My law will be there. God's people are sealed, Revelation 7, with his law because it's a transcript of his character, which is his name, Revelation 14. Do you see it? God's law is in our hearts and that is the seal of God. All right. Ezekiel 20, 20 adds to this, hallow my Sabbaths and they shall be a sign between me and you. The, the word here, sign, is oath. It's the Hebrew word oath, and it, and it just means mark. And it's the same word that, that God used when he said that he was going to put a mark on Cain, right? The seal of God the sign of God, the mark of God is His law. And specifically, when Revelation 14 describes the people at the last days talking about fear God and give glory to Him for the hour of His judgment has come and worship Him who made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that in them is, pointing back to the Ten Commandments and specifically to the Fourth Commandment, Ezekiel 
doubles down on this and says, hallow my Sabbaths for they, this fourth commandment, the center of God's law, pointing to the Creator God, they are the sign between you and me that you may know that I am the Lord your God. Not anybody else, but the God of creation. He is the Lord. Why do you think the devil hates the fourth commandment? Why has he moved the church to ignore what God said, remember? It's because it points to God, the God of creation. And if we follow God's law, we find ourselves following the Lamb. When we love the Lamb, the law is part of our character. And he hates the Lamb. And so he hates the Sabbath. And he hates the law. Remember the words of James Cardinal Gibbon. Of course, the Catholic Church claims that the change was her act and that the act is a mark of her ecclesiastical power and authority in religious matters. What, what is it? The act is a what? Mark. I didn't make that up. That was Cardinal Gibbons that said that. The big issue at the end of time is worship. The big issue at the end of time is not your pantry. It is not money, and it is not barcodes or cryptocurrency. The issue at the end of time is worship. What is the mark of this beast's authority? Its mark is that it has tampered with the law and the times um, in, in the law and has told the world that it has the authority to change the Sabbath. This is what Father T. Enright says. The Bible says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The Catholic Church says, no, by my divine power, I abolish the Sabbath day and command you to keep, the whole, keep holy the first day of the week. And lo, the entire civilized world bows down in a reverent obedience to the command of the holy Catholic Church. In light of Bible prophecy, where do you think, um, where, where do you um, offer your reverent obedience when you look at what he says, this reverent obedience, um, where would you say your reverent obedience is being offered? Do you, by observance of the Catholic's day of worship, bow to the beast of Revelation 13? Or have you given your heart to the God of creation? From Monsignor Louis Gaston de Segur, it was the Catholic Church which has transformed this rest to Sunday in remembrance of the resurrection of our Lord. Thus, the observance of Sunday by the Protestants is an homage they pay in spite of themselves to the authority of the church. In the Catholic record in 1923, Sunday is our mark of authority. The church is above the Bible, and this transference of Sabbath observance is proof positive of that fact. The, the beast power openly brags about it. There's no guesswork necessary. It says it's mark is Sunday observance. And the issue is worship. Loyalty. Where is your loyalty? That's the question God wants, to ask, wants us to ask. In 1998, the Roman, uh, Rome published an encyclical letter called Dies Domine, the Day of the Lord, and it said this, Christians will naturally strive to ensure that civil legislation respects their duty to keep Sunday holy. Now, is that a random off-the-cuff statement or is that an agenda? That's an agenda. Back in 2007, Benedict XVI made an amazing demand while visiting the country of Austria. The Pope demands respect for Sundays, the headline says. In 2009, there's this massive push for Sunday observance law all across Europe. Um, and uh, in the European Parliament, they said this, the European Parliament calls on member states and the EU institutions to protect Sunday as weekly rest day, as a weekly rest day, 
in forthcoming national and EU working time legislation. It went to a vote, and it failed by a very thin margin. In 2020, we had um, a, a situation where people had to rest because of this pandemic. And you know what the, the Catholic Church said? This is a really good example. And it established a green agenda that, include, that included a recommendation for all of the world governments to require um, the, their people to stop movements or slow the movements down except for essential movements on Sunday. In 2013, Pope Francis said this, it is not possible to find Jesus outside the church and the mother church that gives us Jesus gives us our identity that is not only a seal, it is a belonging. If you don't join Rome, can you find Jesus according to Pope Francis? Hmm. Let me ask you tonight, where do you stand? What is written in your forehead? Revelation 15.2 says, I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who have the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name standing on the sea of glass having harps of God. I don't know about you, but I'd like to stand on that sea of glass. I... I want to be one of those early Christians who stands for truth in spite of Nero maybe taking me to the stake. I want to be one of those Valdo or Albigensians or the the Ethiopians in North Africa who were following God's Word in spite of the church and who were attacked by by the, the Catholic armies. I want to be one of those guys I want to stand for truth though the heavens fall. And today, we have that opportunity. It might not look like there's anything coming down the pike. You might, you might maybe have blinders on both sides of your eyes and not have been seeing it, but the reality is we are at the, at the fraying edge of history when, well, the next thing is Jesus coming. It won't take any time at all. Months? When things start to roll, won't take any time at all. And I want to be that guy that stands, the one that says, God's word is truth, and I will follow Jesus even if it kills me. I'm not saying that I want to be killed, but you get what I'm saying. To stand for the, for the right, though the heavens fall. Can you hand out those cards? And I'm going to ask Claudia and Patty to come up and... Uh, and sing a verse of a song while you do.
on that card that you have in your hands. You might have been filling it out already, but that first line says, I surrender my life completely to Jesus and to the truth, the truth found in God's Word. And if you can say yes to that, then put a check mark there. The second line says, I reject the beast and the mark of its authority. The mark of its authority that it says is the fact that it's changed the law in the Bible. The third line says, I love Jesus and will honor him by keeping the seventh-day Sabbath, Saturday, the seal of God's authority. The seal because it is what God has promised to put in our hearts, his law imprinted on our hearts, his character developed inside us. And lastly, the, the final line says, I'd like to be baptized soon. If you haven't been, or if you'd like to be rebaptized, just put a check mark there. And if you've put your name down and filled that out, go ahead and hand it to the center and we'll have the, the ushers pick it up as Claudia sings another verse. All to Jesus I surrender Humbly at His feet I bow Worldly pleasures all forsaken Take me, Jesus, take me Thank you, ladies. Tonight, we have an opportunity that we're given every single day. Paul said it this way, I die daily. And I'd like to ask, if you'd like to surrender your heart to Jesus, even if you've done it a thousand times before, if you'd like to surrender your heart to Jesus tonight, would you please stand with me? If you want to follow the Lamb, stand and say so. And let's pray. Dear Jesus, we have studied something tonight that is momentous in history and significant at these end times. And it's kind of, I don't know, a little bit awkward to talk about a group of people who have actively opposed you. We don't want to disparage any individual, but Lord, we can see from your word that these institutions the ones that we love, like the, the United States of America, are predicted to go against you, to follow the dragon. And so, Lord, we just want to surrender ourselves to following you at whatever cost that might be. Please take each one of these people that are standing tonight. Draw them close to you. Send them your Holy Spirit like you promised to lead them into all truth. And, and Lord, I pray that you would activate them as missionaries in some way, Activate them based on their gifts, their talents, their experience, their place in life, their situation in the world. Um, Please give them a role in telling the world about you. Because, Lord, we don't want anybody, anybody at all to be following Satan. And we want people to know that there is truth out there, that your word has exciting truth about you. So please put us to work according to your will. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for coming. I really appreciate it.